Our Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. And once again, it's time for Constitution Classroom, as once again we welcome Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, great to catch up with you again. We have started, I think we've done the last two weeks on the 14th Amendment, and you were telling me as we were getting ready for today's program, uh, we're, we're not even close <laughs> to being done with this not amendment. Not even close. You know, as we look to these portions of the 14th Amendment that we've already talked about a little bit, we still have portions of these to cover yet. We've looked at the Citizenship Clause. We've looked at the Privileges and Immunities Clause, although we need to discuss that more today. We've looked at the Due Process Clause, the Equal Protection Clause. All of that is part of the 14th Amendment. However, all of that is only Section 1 of the 14th Amendment. There are five sections. Now, the other five are going to be easier to cover, but we need to look at those as well. So the 14th Amendment is probably one of the two most significant amendments that's been passed since the Bill of Rights. You know, the Bill of Rights is adopted in 1789, ratified in 1791. Since that time, we had only 17 additional amendments. It's been pointed out that the effect of the Bill of Rights is to limit the power of the federal government. The effect of most of the other 17 amendments is to expand the power of the federal government. And when we look to these amendments, there's probably one that has had as sweeping significance as the 14th, and that would be the 16th Amendment. We talk about the growth of big government and how we've gone from a small, limited federal government in George Washington's day, a federal government that had a total of 350 federal civilian employees governing a nation that at that time was about maybe three and a half to four million people. And now we see the size of the federal government and millions of federal employees, and that's only the civilian, not counting the military employees. So we see a federal government that has grown dramatically. And the 14th Amendment has done a great deal to make that growth constitutionally possible, although I'd say it's more stretches and misinterpretations of the 14th Amendment that have done that. But the 16th Amendment, the amendment that authorizes a federal income tax, there is the amendment that has fueled the federal bureaucracy. You know, one of the reasons that federal government was so limited prior to 1913 is that there wasn't a means of funding all the big things that we have the federal government doing today. That's where the federal income tax comes in, which had been held unconstitutional until the 16th Amendment was adopted in 1913. And we'll be getting to that in a few weeks. But right now, let's look at the 14th Amendment. And again, just the first section of the 14th Amendment, which says all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. 
It goes on to say, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. We call that the due process clause nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. We call that the Equal Protection Clause. The Citizenship Clause first, which establishes that if you're born or naturalized in the United States, then you have a basis for being a citizen of the United States, but not automatic, as some are trying to interpret that. With the issue of anchor babies and so on, in other words, a baby that is born to the United States of, let's say, two immigrants, both of whom are here illegally, because that baby was born here in the United States, is that baby automatically a citizen of the United States? Well, if you read just the portion of the amendment that I've quoted so far, you would say yes. But it goes on to say, and subject to the jurisdiction thereof, that is the jurisdiction of the United States. Not only must they be born in the United States, they must be subject to the jurisdiction of the United States. And exactly what that means, whether it has to be the full jurisdiction, the same as any U.S. citizen, or whether it can be only a very partial jurisdiction in the sense of being subject to our criminal laws, that's is unclear, so we still have a question there, but here is one thing that that is clear, and that is that our citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside, and I think really this is the more important portion of the citizenship clause, that if you're a citizen of the United States, then you're automatically a citizen also of the state that you are residing in. And, of course, that would not include those who might be United States citizens but are residing overseas. But if you reside in a state, you're a citizen of that state if you're a citizen of the United States. In other words, states will not have separate citizenship requirements that might say whites only or blacks only or whatever. In other words, if you're a U.S. citizen and you reside in a state, you're a citizen of that state as well. How this will apply to Kamala Harris or others in situations like that, that is something that is going to have to be worked out elsewhere. I don't see anything we can gain by looking at that issue further right now. And then we've looked at the Equal Protection Clause, and that clause has said, nor shall any state deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. And we saw that this means that people who are similarly situated must be similarly treated. In other words, you can't treat people differently unless there is a rational basis for doing so. That is, unless they are not similarly situated. If a state university in its medical school has a policy that we will accept students who have a straight A undergraduate GPA, but we will not accept students who have a straight F undergraduate GPA. Well, that's not a violation of the Equal Protection Clause because there is certainly a rational basis for treating those with higher GPAs differently from those with lower GPAs. There is good reason to think those with higher GPAs will 
do better in medical school and be more likely to pass the medical boards afterward and become good doctors than those who have not demonstrated they have that kind of academic ability. But we also saw that among the types of discrimination that we sometimes practice here, that there are some that are almost never justified, like racial discrimination. And since racial discrimination is almost never justified, and since racial discrimination often has had a malicious or invidious motive behind it, we say that we will allow that kind of discrimination only if it can be demonstrated that the government has a compelling interest that cannot be achieved by any less restrictive means. We sometimes call that strict scrutiny. Be very, very rare where you'd find a situation where there'd be a basis for racial discrimination. Say, possibly, if we were sending spies to Iceland, we might argue that the CIA, its spies could probably fit into the population better if they were white than, than black spies could, so there might be a basis there. Maybe if we were talking about sending police officers into a disturbance in a black neighborhood, maybe black officers would have better rapport and so on. There might be a few circumstances where you might justify discrimination there, but very, very few. And then we have some like age discrimination where there are some legitimate reasons to think that people above a certain age might be more able to do things than those who are younger, for example, to say that we will allow 18-year-olds to vote, but we won't allow three-year-olds to vote. There's certainly a basis for that. That's rational to say that, or to say that people who are over 50 are no longer in general, fit to be police officers, and those who are under 50 are generally more fit, there's a rational basis there. So we say for that kind of discrimination, which there's a basis for, and also it's often for the purpose of protecting people from the stresses of a job they couldn't handle, we say that all we need there is a rational basis or a reasonable relationship to a legitimate state purpose. And then we have some types that are in between, like sex discrimination policy, where we say that only we will only hire men for this job or we'll only hire women for this job. And that has had a more benign purpose sometimes. So we say that's middle tier and that can be justified with a significant or substantial relationship to an important governmental interest. Why do you think some of the top investors in the world are buying gold? Recently, a handful of billionaires have been accumulating gold over other forms of investments. When the world's financial moguls like Sam Zell begin choosing metals, perhaps it's time you listen and follow suit with your own personal investments. Gold is formally recognized as a hedge against currency depreciation and inflation. Take David Einhorn as one example. Einhorn founded Greenlight Capital in 1996 and surged that fund from $900,000 to as high as $11 billion. Einhorn believes 
believes that the central bank's recent stimulus efforts will have an effect on pushing up the value of gold. He keeps 10% of his firm's value stored in gold bullion. If you're interested in knowing more about gold, platinum, and palladium, call Noble Gold for a no-pressure consultation. They have the most experienced representatives and an exclusive pipeline to metal sources. Visit them at noblegoldinvestments.com. That's noblegoldinvestments.com. When thinking about life insurance, my accident reinforced you never know what tomorrow might bring. That's why I reached out to AccuQuote. AccuQuote helps people find a life insurance policy that meets their needs. Since 1986, they've helped millions of folks save up to 60% on their life insurance by comparing the rates and features of dozens of top-rated life insurance products. A healthy 50-year-old non-smoker can buy a half a million dollars of 10-year level term for less than 45 bucks a month. A 60-year-old under 120 bucks a month. Longer or permanent terms are available. Even if you already own life insurance, you really need to check out my friends at AccuQuote. Don't worry about health issues. Remember, they help me. As a pastor, I'm concerned about your soul and helping you to make sure your family is taken care of. Life insurance is more affordable now than ever, so don't make them wish you'd made that call. 877-437-4781. Call now, 877-437-4781. 877-437-4781. Each policy points and availability vary by state. Balance of nature, changing the world, one life at a time. I have seen a, a change in how I feel. I do feel better. I actually feel like doing stuff, <laughs> if that makes any sense. It's it's just a, a better feeling just throughout my whole body. Right now, Balance of Nature is offering free shipping and 35% off on any new preferred order. Go to balanceofnature.com today and use discount code USA. Now you can fly anywhere in the world and pay discount prices on your airline tickets. Book a flight today to London, Paris, Madrid, or anywhere else you want to go. And pay a lot less guaranteed. Call the International Travel Department right now at low-cost airlines. 800-215-5141. 800-215-5141. That's 800-215-5141. And once again, we are back with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law, and this is Constitution Classroom. We are talking about the 14th Amendment, and uh, ready to move on, I guess, to, uh, is, it, is it time to move on, Colonel, to due process? Yes, we've already talked about due process. We're just kind of reviewing a couple of these things before we go into the Privileges and Immunities Clause, but... Looking at the due process issue, again, that portion of the 14th Amendment says that nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And the courts have talked about procedural due process, meaning those rights that we would say are necessary for court proceedings like the right to a hearing, the right to a jury, the right to be represented by counsel, the right to confront, the right to subpoena witnesses and the like, versus substantive due process, which we would call other rights like the right of free speech and so on. And I've always felt, and I know a number of others have have said that this distinction between procedural and substantive due process doesn't exist in the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. In fact, 
the whole distinction is meaningless. To say substantive due process, well, substantive process is a contradiction, an oxymoron. Procedural due process is a redundancy, procedural process. So the way I would rather put it, rather than substantive and procedural due process, I would say procedural rights and substantive rights. The procedural rights are those which we think are necessary to ensure that substantive rights are preserved. Substantive rights are the rights that we enjoy on a daily basis, like the right to own and use property, the right to make and enforce contracts, the right to labor, the right to travel, the right of free speech, free press, freedom of religion, and the like. Those are substantive rights. Procedural rights are the kinds of rights we would normally associate with a court procedure. And we might say that Procedural rights, we value these because we believe they are necessary to ensure that we're not deprived of our substantive rights without good cause. In other words, we value the right to a jury trial because we think that's necessary to ensure that we're not going to be executed or jailed or fined unless there is good cause for doing so. So I would make that distinction instead. But again, when we talk about life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Due process, we say, simply means those rights that we would think are necessary in order to to protect our substantive rights. But furthermore, that as we look to them, we see that the substantive rights are procedural rights like the right of free speech, free press, and so on. But beyond that, the court has read into the liberty right a right, essentially, to be left alone, the right to, as Justice Kennedy has put it, and not with good reason, in my opinion, to define one's own existence. And if you said to the authors of the 14th Amendment and 1868, are we defining our own existence by this? They would have wondered what planet you came from. But there's a liberty right here that is considered to be broader than just simply not being in jail. It's a right to be able to do what you want to do without the government imposing upon you unless the government has a good reason for restricting your liberty. Now, it's interesting the way we see these rights developing here, and as we look to the courts, for example, in 1923, we see a Supreme Court case of Meyer versus Nebraska, and this involved a Nebraska law, kind of an outgrowth out of World War I, that required that in the public schools, children be taught in the English language only. And Meyer, that's a German name, of course, but Meyer is a teacher in a German Lutheran school, and the parents want him to teach their children in the German language, but Nebraska law says no, they have to be taught in English. And so they filed a lawsuit. And the Supreme Court in this case simply looked at that, and they said that the right of the parents to employ this teacher to teach their children is a right guaranteed by the Liberty Clause of the 14th Amendment. 
and that the Constitution denies the state the right to force parents to have their children instructed in the English language only, and that the right of the parents to hire Mr. Meyer to teach their children German is a right that is within the liberty guarantee of the 14th Amendment. We see this expanded two years later in a case, Pierce versus Society of Sisters. And this is a case involving a Catholic school in the state of Oregon at a time when Oregon was had, had adopted a law requiring all children to attend the public schools. And some have thought this dealt with the freedom of religion of the Catholic Church in this case, but there was a companion case, Pierce versus Hill Military Academy, a purely secular private school. And so this was involving not simply a religious right, but a parental right. And anyway, the Hill Military Academy and the Society of Sisters with their Catholic school, they won their case before the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court simply said that the state does not have the power to standardize its children by forcing them to accept instruction from public teachers only, went on to say, and I think this language is very important, the child is not the mere creature of the state. Those who brought the child into the world and are raising that child have the right, coupled with the obligation, to recognize and prepare the child for future responsibilities. The basic right to control the upbringing and the education of our children was established by the court here based on this clause of the 14th Amendment the way back in 1925. And there's a further case, 1927, that expands it still further, Parrington versus Takashiga, and then the Yoder versus Wisconsin case in 1972 that establishes that, particularly in the case of the Amish, they do not have to send their children to public schools. They can educate them in a non-public setting, and they tied it in not only with parental rights, but with free exercise of religion as well. Well, we see all of this, and we see the importance of it, and we see how fundamental our right to be able to raise our children as we see fit and to control their education and this principle, the child is not the mere creature of the state, is the one that I think we would all rally to and recognize. But we mentioned before that, in a sense, every constitutional decision is a two-edged sword. And the principle we establish by a decision can also be used against us. For example, the right of free speech that guarantees the right to have a program like this on the Internet, that same guarantee might also include the right of somebody else to have a program advocating socialism or communism or things that we wouldn't like. Every constitutional decision is a two-edged sword, as we're going to see after the break. Okay, a marvelous explanation, Colonel. And again, for those of you who uh, are, are liking getting your minds wrapped around the uh, Constitution and some of the various amendments, we would encourage you, go to lovingliberty.net. That is where you are going to find the full archive of all of Colonel Eidsmo's shows. The Constitution Classroom is what it's called. Again, lovingliberty.net. 
You can also visit uh, the Colonel's uh, uh, Mor- Foundation for Moral Law at morallaw.org. We will take a very quick break and be back right after this. Once again, we are back. This is Constitution Classroom. Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law is your host. And Colonel, it's time that uh, we talk more about that two-edged sword. Well, Robert Bork, some of you remember Robert Bork. He was nominated for the Supreme Court and the liberals on the Senate did not confirm him, which many of us thought was a travesty. He was a brilliant man, but... They felt that he was more conservative than what they wanted. A few years later, he wrote a book titled The Tempting of America that was quite widely circulated. Subtitle was The Political Seduction of the Law. And you wonder, what does he mean, the tempting? Well, I'm just going to read you a little portion from his introduction. I think we're going to find it very relevant here. Talking about temptation. He says, the process by which this is accomplished may vary from field to field, from universities to the media to courts. In law, the moment of temptation is the moment of choice when a judge realizes that in the case before him, his strongly held view of justice, his political and moral imperative, is not embodied in a statute or in any provision of the Constitution. He must then choose between his version of justice and abiding by the American form of government. In other words, what he's saying here is the judge is looking at a case here and he has a gut feeling as to what he thinks is just and right here, but the law does not allow him to do what his sense of justice requires. And as Bork says then, he must then choose between his form of justice and abiding by the American form of government, yet the desire to do justice, whose nature seems to him obvious, is compelling. While the concept of constitutional process is abstract, rather arid, and the abstinence it counsels unsatisfying. To give in to temptation, this one time solves an urgent human problem. We kind of set the law aside or bent it, and done something that we think is just in this case. But Bork says, and a faint crack appears in the American foundation. A judge has begun to rule where a legislature should. In other words, the judge has exceeded his role as a judge and acted as a legislature instead. Now, it may be that in Meyer and in Griswold, or rather in Pearson, several of those cases, maybe the court did a little of that kind of appealing to temptation, that is, giving a ruling that they wanted to rule, even with some question as to whether the term liberty of the 14th Amendment actually meant that. But let's see how they took that term liberty then, as we see it gives a parent the right to educate his child, to raise his child as he sees fit, and how they take that in a different direction in the 1960s. 
the 1960s, we have a case, Griswold versus Connecticut, in which the Supreme Court says that this same liberty that we see in the 14th Amendment also guarantees the right of two married people in the privacy of their own bedroom to practice birth control. And Justice Black, very much the literalist, dissents. Black says, I like my privacy as well as the next one, and I think a law that prohibits people from practicing birth control is very offensive. But unless you can show me that the Constitution protects the right to privacy, I have to agree the government has the right to invade it. Well, anyway, they did so on a very limited basis in Griswold, applying it there only to married couples and the use of birth control in their own home. But then just a couple of years later, in the Eisenstadt versus Bayard case, the court takes that liberty guarantee and applies it with the Equal Protection Clause and says that if we're going to apply this to married people, we have to apply it to unmarried people as well. They have a right to birth control, too. Then, in 1973, in Roe v. Wade, the court takes the same principle. In fact, they quote the exact same language that had been used in Griswold and in Eisenstadt and say, not only does this include the right to practice birth control, but this parental right to control the upbringing and education of your children includes the right to decide whether to have children and to decide that retroactively by aborting your child. And then we see them going off into even more wild directions than that in Lawrence versus Texas, where they say this right of privacy includes the right to decide whether you want to be homosexual or heterosexual. And then in Obergefell versus Hodges in 2015 to decide whether you, you want to marry a person of the same sex and where that's going to go from there. Point of the matter is there's based on that same so-called right of privacy that is being derived out of that liberty guarantee in the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. My point is that, once again, every constitutional decision is a two-edged sword. And unless we stick, stick very strictly with what the Constitution itself says, we open the door to all sorts of temptations all sorts of seduction, all sorts of mischief. Well, we also mentioned that with this 14th Amendment, we have what we call the incorporation doctrine. And that incorporation doctrine, as we have seen, holds that either this due process clause or the privileges and immunities clause takes the Bill of Rights and applies that Bill of Rights to the state. We've argued before that the effect of this would be that it takes the 14th Amendment, I think, far beyond anything that the framers of the 14th Amendment in 1868 intended, far beyond anything that the states that ratified the 14th Amendment intended, and has really had the effect of concentrating in the federal courts almost all power to deal with rights. That's why we see so many more cases involving rights issues taking place right now with the federal courts and so few cases 
taking place under state law because we have federalized that whole business by this incorporation doctrine that I strongly question whether that doctrine was ever what the framers intended. However, when we look to this issue of incorporation, the question that arises then is, does this mean the entire Bill of Rights is incorporated? Or does it mean that only some of the Bill of Rights is incorporated? And a few justices have said that the whole Bill of Rights is incorporated. For example, Justice Black took that point of view. Justice Douglas came very close to taking that point of view. But the general position of the courts has been that only some of the Bill of Rights are incorporated. They call that selective incorporation. So how do we decide which rights are incorporated and which rights are not? Well, it really depends a great deal on the subjective opinion of particular judges. One judge may think that the right of free speech is all important, and that one needs to be incorporated. Another may think, no, I think the most important guarantee in the Bill of Rights is the right to keep and bear arms. That one needs to be incorporated. Another might say, no, no, I think that's a terrible idea. It shouldn't have been in the first place, but it certainly isn't incorporated and applied to the states. Generally, what they do is they will use three tests in determining whether or not a right is incorporated and applied to the state. And again, you'll see this is subjective. First, they'll ask, is this right essential to fundamental fairness? Hurtado versus California, for example, the court said that the right to a grand jury indictment, you could have a fair system of law without that. And so we're going to say that that right is not essential to fundamental fairness, so states don't have to use grand juries. The second question is, is it implicit in the concept of ordered liberty? In other words, is the very definition of a free society one in which we have that right? Somebody were to say, well, I come from a country, this country way over the seas. Now, you probably never heard of it. We are a free country. Now, we don't have freedom of speech. We can't criticize the government, but we're a free country. We'd probably say, by definition, you're not a free country if you don't have freedom of speech. That's implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. Third part of it is it deeply rooted in our history and tradition. And go back to common law and so on. Point being made out of all of these All of these are subjective, but that's their way of trying to determine what is incorporated and what is not. Again, I say the entire incorporation doctrine is a fabrication of the 20th century and not what the 14th Amendment authors intended. That's an excellent explanation and a great place for us to take a quick commercial break. Again, you're listening to Constitution Classroom with your host, Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Jay Farner, CEO of Rocket Mortgage. Making the right financial decisions has never been more important. We can help guide you to those right decisions now when they matter most. Mortgage rates are near historic lows. So when you call 8338-ROCKET or visit us at rocketmortgage.com to start your refinance, you'll be well on your way to saving money every month. 
The rate today on our 30-year fixed-rate mortgage is 3.375%, APR 3.59%. Right now could be a great time for you to take some positive financial steps forward with a cash-out refinance from Rocket Mortgage, which could give you the boost that you're looking for. In addition, we may be able to help you refinance with little or no out-of-pocket costs. At Rocket Mortgage, we're committed to every client, every time, no exceptions, no excuses, giving you the best mortgage experience. Call us today at 8338-ROCKET or go to rocketmortgage.com to learn more. Rates subject to change. A 1.875% fee to receive this discounted rate. Call for cost information and conditions. Equal housing lender. License in all 50 states. NMLS number 3030. I love golf, and I also stink at golf. I've tried it all. The lessons, the special swing contraptions, the neon brush tees, the funny hats, the putting all of my change in my left pocket. I like to say I just happen to have a high golf handicap. My friends would say I have a high talent disadvantage. Luckily, while I might be fighting some disadvantages on the golf course, at our Faith and Family Mortgage Team, we're lucky to be able to serve listeners with a unique advantage. Our team is an arm of a bigger company who is a direct lender which means our company gets to use its own money and make its own decisions within its own walls. And for you, that can mean shorter turnaround times and often a lower rate, which could save you monthly and lifelong money on a new home, refinance, or cash-out refinance. We are United Faith Mortgage. United Faith Mortgage is a DBA of United Mortgage Corp. 25 Middle Park Road, Melbourne, New York. Licensed mortgage banker. For all licensing information, go to animalistconsumeraccess.org. Corporate animalist number 1330. Equal housing lender. I license in Alaska, Hawaii, Georgia, Massachusetts, Mississippi, North Dakota, South Dakota, or Utah. Welcome to Tax Talk with Hollywood legend Bob Eubanks. You know, as part of Hollywood for a long time, I've seen my fair share of celebrities get in trouble with the IRS. Well, there's one name I trust, the Tax Defense Group. They're the most trusted name in tax. So if you owe more than $10,000 to the IRS, you really need to call my friends at the Tax Defense Group. Ignoring the IRS is not the solution. They can garnish your paycheck, levy your bank accounts, seize your home or business. But the Tax Defense Group could put a stop to all of that and tailor a program that would reduce your tax debt to pennies on the dollar. You gotta love that. So don't just take my word for it. Call them. Find out for yourself. They offer a 100% satisfaction guarantee and they're open 24 hours a day because they know that tax debt doesn't sleep either. Call now for your free and confidential tax analysis from the most trusted name in tax. Call 800-832-1594. 800-832-1594. And once again, we welcome you back. This is our final segment of the show today. This is Constitution Classroom with Colonel John Eitzmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. We've been talking about the 14th Amendment and privileges and immunities. I'm very excited to learn about this, Colonel. Where do we begin? It's hard to say where to begin, but we're going to try here. The Privileges and Immunities Clause, that is one of the most ambiguous clauses of the entire Constitution, certainly the most ambiguous in the 14th Amendment. And again, the clause here simply says, nor shall no state may make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges and immunities of citizens of the United States. So what do we mean then by privileges or immunities? Immunities, are we talking about vaccinations? No, clearly immunity is in the sense of being immune from certain legal penalties and the like. But there has been a great deal of confusion about this. And maybe rather than calling it confusion, maybe what I ought to call it is difference of opinion. 
But one view that has been taken, a view that was held by a Justice Bush Rod Washington, who was a Churchill descendant of George Washington, he wrote that the privileges and immunities are those which in their nature are fundamental, which belong of right to citizens of all free governments, and which have at all times been enjoyed by the citizens of the several states from the time of becoming free, independent, and sovereign. Well, if that is the meaning, then that would seem to be the same thing as the liberties guaranteed by the Due Process Clause. Others have tried to interpret this to mean that privileges and immunities simply means that you can't treat one group of citizens differently from another group of citizens within your state. If that's the case, then it would be the same thing as the Equal Protection Clause. And again, there is a strong presumption in law against redundancy. They wouldn't have put this Privileges and Immunities Clause in there to say the same thing as they were already saying in the Life, Liberty, and Property and Due Process Clause, nor would they put it in there to just say the same thing as they were saying in the Equal Protection Clause. So what does this mean? I'm going to suggest a interpretation, and I'm still researching this too, and I'm not entirely certain about it, but what I'm going to suggest is that we need to look to the distinction here between privilege and right. A right is something that is guaranteed to you by God, and a right, therefore, that, as our Declaration of Independence says, is unalienable. Government can't take it away because it is given by a higher source than government. A privilege is something that the government may permit you to do, but which the government doesn't have to permit you to do. They could take away that, that privilege. For example, hunting on state lands. You could probably say that is a privilege, not a right. Hunting on other lands, you could probably argue that as a right. You might argue that either way. But hunting or fishing on state lands, I think you could make an argument that is a privilege. The state wouldn't have to allow you to hunt or fish on state lands at all if they don't want to. But they can, and sometimes they do. Or maybe giving certain tax breaks. Tax incentives, for example, that will allow you to write off certain things in your taxes if you use it for corporates, you know, for develop your business and so on, or charitable deductions, other things like this, certain tax breaks. Those are things that the government could give or that the government could take away. Possibly certain property rights could be considered to be rights that are privileges rather than rights, and various other categories like this. And I would interpret the Privileges and Immunities Clause to mean that if you are going to grant a privilege, like hunting on state lands, you cannot restrict that privilege to only citizens of your state, or you can't restrict that privilege to one class, like, for example, people of a certain religion, 
people of a certain sex, people of a certain race and the like, that it, you have to give that to all equally. And, for example, hunting laws. It's been pretty well established, not only based on this clause, but based upon the interstate commerce clause as well, that if the state, let's say the state is going to have a moose hunting season, and we're only going to give out 500 moose hunting permits this year. And so only 500 people can get them. And so we'll have a lottery for who the first 500 names drawn will get them. That's going to be okay because there's a valid reason for limiting the number of people hunting moose in this locality. But if they were to say, however, because we have to limit these, only state residents will be allowed to get them. Courts have said, no, you can't restrict that to state residents alone based on the interstate commerce clause, but also based upon the privileges and immunities clause. If you are going to allow state residents to compete for getting one of those hunting permits, you've got to allow out-of-state residents the right to compete as well. You don't have to allow anybody to hunt, but you can't discriminate against residents or citizens of other states. The privileges that you give to citizens of your state, you have to give to citizens of the United States who may be citizens of other states. That interpretation, as I see it, distinguishes the clause from the Equal Protection Clause that interprets it consistently with equal protection. It distinguishes it from the Due Process Clause that is consistent with it. It interprets it consistently with the Citizenship Clause. So I'm of the opinion that that might be the best way to look at the Privileges and Immunities Clause. But again, I emphasize this is one of the most ambiguous clauses in the 14th Amendment. For that reason, it has been subject to many different interpretations. And for that reason, it's often been ignored. In fact, as of what we call the slaughterhouse cases of the 1880s, it almost became a dead letter where the courts just didn't even consider it or consider it to mean the same thing as due process and nothing more. Anyway, so as we look to these provisions of the 14th Amendment, I think we're going to see that this is a very, very important amendment. But again, we still have to go on to the remaining sections of the amendment, sections 2, 3, 4, and 5, and they'll be easier to cover. They'll take less time, but they are significant as well. Maybe Section 5 would be one that we should look at because this probably has great significance today. Section 5 simply says that Congress may enforce this amendment by appropriate legislation. Very simple, you think. But that really is quite a tremendous grant of power to Congress. Does this mean then that Congress can pass? Any law that it wants to pass, if it has some relationship to enforcing one of the provisions of the preceding four sections of the 14th Amendment, well, it has been interpreted that way sometimes. 
But in regard to religious liberty, the Bernie versus Flores case, its interpretation was limited. And there they said that the court, the, the Congress can can enforce the 14th Amendment only on a proportionate basis. That is, whatever legislation that it adopts to enforce this has to be proportionate to what is needed for it. In other words, you can't use a sledgehammer to kill an ant. It's got to be proportionate. You can't use the H-bomb to destroy an ant hill. Anyway, we're going to see that as we move into the remaining clauses of the 14th Amendment, and we will look at that next week. Okay, sounds great. Colonel, thank you for taking the time each week to share your extensive knowledge on this subject and, and other related subjects. I just, I, I know that the listeners appreciate it. I want to take the time to express my appreciation as well. Um, this is very enlightening, and again, the archives for everything uh, done here in the Constitution Classroom can be found at lovingliberty.net. Just uh, click on Constitution Classroom and you will be there. Many, many hours of great listening. 